Father, we sing. We hold on to that truth. God, in the, in the depths of our sorrow and pain, Lord, that you are there. God, that we don't worship a God who said, good luck, figure it out, obey. We worship a God who came into the middle of chaos and suffering and pain and said, I will wear all of them. And so God, in the moments of true anguish and pain that we walk through in this life, we may not find explanation, we may not find that you are causing it, that we know why it's happening, but we find that you are there. So God, not for a moment will you ever leave our side. We proclaim that here today. We, we reach out to your love and affection for us, God, knowing that you will be found true and strong. It's in your name we pray, in your name we sing, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You guys may be seated. I want to invite all the children, uh, if you're in grades, is it K through 5, pre-K through 5, you're going to go to your class. Miss Kim is standing at the back, so make sure that you make your way back there. Well, welcome. It's good to see you guys. I'm going to grab this. You know, if you were here last week, um, you witnessed what, what could only be classified as a savage attack. And if there's one thing you don't mess with, it's a man's genes. And so Ryan decided that he would, you know, granted he's wearing shorts this morning, so you can judge the merits of that. Ryan decided that he wanted to have a little fun at my expense, which I'm all about. But then, you know, guys, I just have to tell you, I'm really, like, I really take Jesus' words very seriously. And so when people uh, persecute me or are cruel to me, I just pray for them. And so with Ryan, I was, I was praying for him. Uh, you know, uh, my family and I were on vacation last week. And so, yeah, can you turn that down just a little bit? Um, and I was, you know, just taking time out of our busy schedule just to pray for Ryan. And I really felt like God was saying to me, go to Google, Ian. <laughs> and so, I, I, who, who am I but a humble servant to listen to the Lord? And so I went and I typed Ryan's name into Google. And wouldn't you know... That Ryan is, you know, we've been talking about ordinary heroes over the last couple months. And Ryan is, in fact, an ordinary hero. I want you to take a look at this. How long have I been snowboarding? Probably, like, since I could walk, so... You know, five or six. It's important to always make sure that you get it strapped in properly. So that's what I'm doing here. I'm taking extra time and care to make sure that it's on my feet. That's where the boots Okay, that's, that's an example of how it doesn't stick there. It's riveting. Yeah, it locks right in there like a baby's box. Those coveralls you're wearing? What, like, what are those? Those, those are way better than my jeans. I am just snowboarding what Fergie is. Did you kill that to, thing? Uh, okay. To the black if you're, uh, if you're affiliated with PETA, you know, please my, take that up My parents knew there was something special about me from the beginning, I think. Uh, they actually saved some pictures of me from when I was a youngster in my, my favorite snowsuit. <laughs> I'm pink and I'm cold and I'm serious about snowboarding. I'm coming for you. 
I eat snowboarders for breakfast. Your girlfriend to help you keep steady at first. This, it's not. That's not wrong. A lot of people do it. Sean White uses his mom, so she's holding me, and then, and then I go. So now we're gonna snowboard. Yeah, Rip it up! <laughs> Alright, you can stop it if you can. Oh, kids. Hey, let that be a lesson to you. The internet is forever. Don't mess with a man's pants if you uh, have posted. Hey, in all, in all seriousness, Ryan is an awesome, awesome guy. We are so grateful to have him. He's a fantastic preacher. I encourage you. We have a podcast. Get on there. Listen to his last couple messages. Uh, he is growing in, in such amazing ways, and we are benefiting from him so much. So I encourage you. Check out those last couple messages. It's good that we can mess with each other, but uh, man, when, I, when, I, when you go after the skinny jeans, you go after very near and dear to my heart. So we, we've been talking about ordinary heroes, and much like our friend Ryan, snowboard boss, we're going to look at another ordinary hero today, somebody that I think we can find a lot to say to our own lives. And so if you're familiar with Jonah at all, it is no doubt you are familiar with a bearded man getting swallowed by a large fish. Uh, and that is the, the picture that, that sort of sticks with us, and for, for good reason. Uh, and so I just want to give you a brief summary of the book of Jonah, maybe the parts that you don't remember as, as clearly as the big fish. The, the book opens with the voice of God commanding Jonah to go and preach against Nineveh because of their great wickedness. Jonah takes the first part of that instruction and then proceeds to do exactly the opposite. I don't know if you can relate to that. Instead, he charters a place on a ship and sails for the farthest reaches of the known world. The text tells us that he is fleeing the presence of God. He wants to flee God's face. You'd think as a prophet of the Lord, he would know that that's not really possible, but he's going to try. And so Jonah uh, buys a place on the ship and he, he goes down into the, the bowels of the ship and just goes to sleep. And so God has a way of trying to get our attention. And so he sends a storm. And this storm is raging. The sailors are freaking out. They're throwing cargo over the, the side of the boat, trying to figure out how they're going to survive. And Jonah is sleeping. God is moving heavens. The heavens are literally raging. And Jonah is in the middle of the boat, fast and so Jonah finally comes to and wakes and comes to the bow or the, the stern of the ship and says, well, guys, you have to throw me overboard. That's the only way you're getting out of this alive. And so they do. They throw Jonah into the water and the storm ceases. And, and like you do when God does something that just totally blows your mind, they don't know what to do, so they just, they just offer sacrifices. They're like, I don't know what God that was, but praise him. And Jonah is sinking deep. We read his prayer from Jonah chapter 2, and as we probably mostly know, Jonah is swallowed by a large fish. There's a prayer that Jonah offers that we read earlier, and then Jonah is, it says, vomited out onto the land. And then God tries again. He says, go, go to Nineveh. And in the third chapter, we see Jonah... Finally, the good soldier that God was looking for, finally obeying the commandments of God, well, kind of. 
You see, he goes into the heart of Nineveh, pronouncing that the city will be judged. But the way he does it kind of gives us a little insight into his mindset. I don't know how many of you are parents, and, and you're at the point of your life where your kids have chores, but, but it's possible that sometimes they don't always do it with the, the heart and the gusto that you would like for them to do it. And Jonah kind of does that. You know, God basically tells him, go clean up your room, and he throws everything under the bed. And the room's clean, as far as you know. And so Jonah, he goes, and he goes into the city, and he says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, 40 days is a Hebrew idiom for like, at some point, this is going to happen. You know, it doesn't mean urgently right now, but somewhere in the future, this might happen to you. It'd be like somebody telling you, you have a library fine that will come due in uh, maybe five or ten years. Jonah's very... Uh, very ambiguous about the time frame of when this judgment is going to occur. He's not urgent. He's not saying, you need to repent now. He's basically just saying, 40 days. You, got, you guys got 40 days. Nineveh will be overthrown. And so he's half-heartedly telling the, the Ninevites this message that God has given him. <laughs> and, and if anything, the, the amazing thing is the response of the Ninevite people. They all, from the king to the livestock... Uh, go, go into a state of fasting and praying and repenting. I mean, Jonah has just preached the worst sermon in the Bible. I, I kid you not. He 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But it is the most effective sermon in the Bible. Like, if I could guarantee that I would stand up here today and, and say something as terrible as that, and you guys would all be like, man, I'm following Christ, I would do that. And so Jonah has just preached what... I, from what I can tell, is absolutely the worst sermon in the Bible. And people respond. The king has the whole nation participate in a fast. Even the, the dogs are fasting. You know, Fido's wondering what the heck he did wrong. And the people respond. It works. And in Jonah 3.10, it says that God changed his mind. A couple times in the Hebrew Bible, we have this description of God changing. That challenges certainly some paradigms for us. And so here we arrive at chapter 4, and this is the chapter that we're going to focus on today because it, it holds the key. Jonah's a very vague, complex book. Uh, I spent a lot of time reading different interpretations, and you would think like something so short and concise would be fairly straightforward. But what I found was Jonah is one of those books that just incites the imagination. And people have gone at Jonah from all sorts of different angles. And so I think this chapter really holds the keys behind why. Why is Jonah fleeing? What is his beef with God? And so today we're going to look at that from one angle. Uh, it's not the only angle. It's the beauty of Scripture. And so we're going to invite uh, God to speak to us from maybe this perspective here today. It says in the beginning, in uh, 4.2, it says, O oh Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better to die than to live. God, God is, is, is almost probing Jonah. Why, why are you upset? And he says, I knew this would happen. And what Jonah says here is not just some random a collection of facts that he knows about God. He is citing a very precise theological formula that's found in Exodus 34, verse 6, where God appears to Moses and he says of himself, he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast 
love and faithfulness. Jonah says it himself. He, he quotes from Exodus 34, 6. He knows. He knows that God is merciful. He knows that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He knows Exodus 34 by heart. But he doesn't know the heart of it. He knows God is like this, but not, not like that. Come on, God. The book of Jonah, as Scripture, says many things and asks many questions. And one of the questions I think that it has for us today is how much mercy are we willing to tolerate for others? You see, Jonah's initial response to that question gives us some insight into what we are dealing with here in Jonah chapter 4. He goes on in verse 3, And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, It is right for you to be angry. Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. And so Jonah says, It would be better for me to die. You see, his whole theology, his whole frame of reference for life has been undone. He has seen God's actions to not only be uh, contrary to what he thought God would do, he's seen God's actions to be unjust. Jonah has become a nihilist. The world is disappointing, disorderly, and pointless. You see, Jonah flees to the sea. He goes to the place where the place of chaos, the place where God's spirit rested at the outset of creation to see if God was still capable of taming the deep, of creating order where there seemed to be none. God told him to go to Nineveh, and he said, not Nineveh, not those people. Jonah is dealing with a major crisis of faith here. And I hope that we will see that God is right there with him maybe even encouraging and inciting his questions. But first, why? Why is Jonah so undone? God's mercy has a way of doing this. And the the first thing I think we see about God's mercy from Jonah is that God's mercy is sometimes pretty scandalous. To grant mercy to the Ninevites, God changes his mind. That challenges some things in our thought. Does God really do that? Does he really change his mind? In Genesis 6, 6, it says that he does. In Jonah 3, 10, it says that he does. It would seem that God is not unwilling to change, to respond to circumstances. But certainly, this is Jonah's question. Does he change his mind on behalf of people like the Ninevites? The word translated change his mind is used in other amazing and profound passages of Scripture. The Genesis uh, passage I, I, I reference is, is about the flood. It's about what God is actually regretting that he has made humanity. And he is almost deliberating with himself. Am I going to continue with this project? In Jeremiah Jeremiah 18.18, the word is used of God relenting of promised disaster. Much like he does in this case. We see the scandalous mercy enacted in the life of Christ over and over again. In Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16, Jesus tells the story of a wealthy landowner who hired workers at the beginning of the day and then... As the day went on, he decides to hire more workers. He, chose to, he chooses to pay them the same amount. The workers who were hired at the beginning of the day are paid exactly what they were promised they would be paid. They don't receive any less because the landowner hired more workers. They receive exactly what they agreed to work for. But the scandal comes in when these workers that were hired at the very end of the day are paid the exact same. 
You can see how they'd be a little upset. These workers who've been working all day are like, you're going to pay them the same that you paid us? That doesn't seem right. And we see Jesus, the kind of people that he attracts, the sort of people that crowd around him, that God's mercy is for those who have always been told that they're exiles, always been told that they are outcasts. God's mercy has a way of drawing them near. In Luke 15, where Jesus tells perhaps his most beautiful trio of stories, it's the sinners and the tax collectors who are leaning in to hear God's words. And in that passage, Jesus tells a story about two sons. And the oldest son is is completely undone by the fact that this father would welcome a wasteful and prodigious son home. I think we have something similar here going on with Jonah. And the first hearers of the story, maybe even the first people who composed this story, would have been uh, asking this uh, very same question. Much like those who listened to Jesus tell the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, wondering, can there really be a Good Samaritan? These people would have been listening to the story of Jonah thinking, can Ninevites really change? You see, it's likely that the story of Jonah is set sometime in the 8th century, sometime in the 700s B.C. Um, But it's likely that it was composed maybe in the 5th or 4th century. It's a pretty late document. And many people listening to Jonah would have known that in 722 B.C., the Assyrians completely annihilate and wipe out the, the northern capital of Israel called Samaria. They rape, they pillage, they destroy. The Assyrians are one of the foremost enemies of the people of God in Scripture. And so for them, listening to a story about God having mercy on the Ninevites would have caused them to say, what? Those are the bad guys. You see, Jonah sets up east of the city. He builds himself a booth. He's got his lawn chair. He's got his snacks. And he's waiting for God to vaporize the city. Because the Ninevites don't change. God's mercy can't, can't be for them. And he's, he's sitting back and he says, all right, God... <laughs> I preach the message, now do what you do. I'm talking some real like Sodom and Gomorrah, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, Texas kind of justice. Like, let's see this go down. And Jonah waits to see what will become of the city. They're cruel tyrants. And it's possible that the people, the first people to have read and written this, this book of Jonah would have subtly been asking the question, wouldn't things have been better if God just took care of Assyria back then? Because if God would have, would have not uh, relented on Assyria, they would have never destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. For them, God's mercy becomes a very real and very uh, personal thing to deal with, especially as it pertains to other people. God's mercy is scandalous. And it always finds itself in the company of undeserving people like Nineveh, like Jonah, and perhaps like you and me. And we see from Jonah that, that this scandalous mercy is not an end unto itself, but it is just the beginning. Jonah receives mercy when he jumps into the water, when he's thrown into the sea, but it doesn't necessarily change his life, as we see over the course of the story of Jonah. Jonah sets up east of the city. To the east is where the out, first outcast from God's presence, Adam and Eve, drifted as they bore their shame and were exiled from the garden. There's a beautiful novel called East of Eden by John Steinbeck. I encourage you all to read it because it talks about how life happens. 
in the place that, that seemingly is removed from God's presence. But it's even here where Adam and Eve would have surely thought that they were alone and an outcast into the world that they find that God is still coming after them. God makes them close in the garden. He sends them away from the garden. And the story very well could have ended right there. But God won't stop. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love just as Jonah knows. God will never, ever give up on us. You see, instead of finding that they are alone and naked and afraid, Adam and Eve find, and their descendants in Genesis find that God is working in their lives, beckoning and challenging, changing His people. East of Eden, east of Nineveh, is where the action in the Bible takes place. Where the place where our sin and our rebellion meets with God's beautiful mercy and grace. And east of Nineveh is where Jonah wrestles with the ramifications of God's mercy. What does it look like when mercy becomes something, not simply that we receive, but something that we have to be a conduit for God to give? Where does it become time to say, wait a second, God, is this who you really are? Is this how you really act? I know for me, I have philosophical debates with God. I don't know if you can relate to this. I I hope you can. But any any point where I see some small child uh, inflicted with suffering in our world, and and if you watch the news, it is every day. Um, At at any point where I read about in our city, uh, where there is is people in our very zip code who don't always know where their next meal is coming from. When I see uh, pictures, and I I decided not to show it, but, but like the young man... Uh, from Syria, who, who, who clearly is so broken and shocked by the things that he has endured. He's five years old. When I think about those things, I have a conversation with God. I say, God, are you seeing this? God, are, are, you, are you here? Are you watching this? And this is kind of what Jonah is doing. He's saying, God, you know what kind of people the Ninevites are. Are you really doing this? Now let me say, the beautiful thing, I think the thing that Jonah has to teach us here is that God has never once smited me for asking these questions. I stand before you today as a testimony. That God is is inviting me to ask these questions, maybe even inciting me to ask these questions. If anything, through, the, through the, my questions, God is drawing me deeper into His heart for the world, deeper into His own heart. He's showing me the true weight of my sin, of my participation in the ways of death, in the, the true depths that this world is broken, and the even greater power of resurrection. You see, God is not an idle bystander. He has overcome the world. And just as God doesn't give Jonah easy answers to hard questions, I love prayer and the Bible. I love communicating with God because they don't always leave us with all the answers, but they let us ask all the questions. And this is what Jonah's doing. Is this who you are, God? Is this how things work? And it's in those questions that the life is found. David White is an Irish poet, and he says, asking Beautiful questions and on beautiful places. And that is what we're trying to do as we walk with God. You see, I think Jonah gets a bad rap. 
because he is seen as a bit narrow in his view of God and the scope of God's mercy. But man, if we're honest, Jonah is such a beautiful figure and paradigm for what it means to struggle, to wrestle, and to live and to walk with God. Jonah thinks that God is committing a foul, and he calls him. He says, uh, excuse me, God, this is not how it's supposed to work. Now, it turns out in the scheme of the story that Jonah just can't see the whole picture. But what if our life was so enmeshed with God's that in the things that we didn't understand or the things that brought us a pause or pain, what if we brought those things before God as Jonah does? You see, Jonah stands at the crossroads of mercy for himself and for a people that he values very little. And he's trying to make sense of it all. And God meets him there. God sends a plant, a worm, a wind, and the sun, all knocking on the doors of Jonah's heart and mind. And even in the midst of Jonah's disobedience, his outright rebellion, his prayers of solace and thanksgiving, his half-hearted fulfillment of God's command to go to Nineveh, and his subsequent inability to understand how God could be merciful to the covenant people and these pagans in the same way, God won't. You see, throughout the book of Jonah, God has literally moved heaven and earth to get to Jonah's heart. And Jonah's disputing God's grace teaches us another thing that I think is so, so very important to grasp. That God is rich in mercy and we have received it. There are instances in our own lives where we would rather die than extend it. As God and Jonah are having their conversation, what does Jonah say? He says, I don't really know how to go on living if the world is like this. It'd be better for me to be dead. And I think for for many of us sitting in here today, we have been through things in our lives where we we would be able to say, "I, I don't know if I can live in a world that is like this. Maybe you have been the victim of some grave injustice, that somebody has done something to you. And Jonah may be at this point as well. You see, if the, if the historical picture is in view, it's possible that he speaks on behalf of all of Israel, saying, God, you have mercy on the Ninevites? Does God really forgive nations like Assyria who murder, rape, destroy, and pillage? And perhaps you're sitting here today and you have been abused verbally, physically. Somebody did something to you that forever altered the path of your life. Jonah's questions are for you. God's responses are for you. God meets Jonah east of the city, not simply to teach him a lesson, but to be with him. Jonah is talking about justice, and God is talking about mercy. C.S. Lewis says in the, the Chronicles of Narnia, he says that sometimes mercy without justice becomes unmerciful. And I hope you can see where those two paths sometimes diverge. Um, Does God forgive people who murder, who rape, who steal? Does He forgive child abusers and cruel, mean-spirited people? Yes. Does He forgive idolaters and people who lust and people who, who put things before God? Yes, yes, scandalously, yes, He does. But right now, your question may be one of justice. If you have experienced something in your life, that has forever changed the path of your your life and has caused you to ask questions of God, you may be sitting where Jonah is, under this plant that seems to be taunting you. Can I invite you? 
to seek God in that place, to see that He is there, that He won't go on without you. That though He is rich in mercy, He's not saying, um, you need to get with the program. He doesn't do that to Jonah. He meets him outside the city and He asks questions. You see, God will be with us in the deepest points of our suffering. God's mercy is broad and it is all around us. Mercy is the level ground that we all stand on at the foot of the cross. The voice that invites us to take off our shoes and see that the ground that we are standing on is holier than we ever knew. Mercy is the invitation of God to come and see that sin does not get the last word in God's beautiful world. Sin does not get to have the last say in our lives. We are not known by our darkest moments or our deepest fears. We are known by what God has called us, and He has called us His sons and His daughters. He won't stop. He won't go on without Jonah. He won't go on without Nineveh. He won't stop. Gerald Manley Hopkins, a Catholic poet, says, I see that we are wound with mercy round and round, as if with air the same. I see that we are wound with mercy round and round, as, with, as if with air the same. Mercy is scandalous. It is a start. And it is an invitation into the ways of God and the world. Jonah 4.9 says, But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, it's right for me to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals. And then the book ends. What? Uh, did we lose the ending? Is, is this how God works? <laughs> like it's, it seems like something's missing here. You see, at the end of this book, there is a question. Not easy answers to hard questions. God is questioning Jonah. God will not move forward with his mission in the world with some mindless company slogan spouting robot. Like He doesn't want Jonah to be that. He doesn't necessarily always want us to, people to think obedience is arbitrary and impersonal. God is inviting us, just as He's inviting Jonah, to know Him. To know His ways, to know His heart. Jonah knew that God was abounding in mercy. He knows Exodus 34 by heart, but he didn't know what it meant. God wants us to know Him. He wants us to know His life. Life has a funny way of never ceasing to give us opportunity to know both God's mercy for us and to have to extend it to others. In 2015, when Dylan Roof opened fire at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, killing nine beautiful souls, the church, just four days later, people, family members, came to Dylan Roof's arraignment hearing where, where you have a chance to say to your accuser before a judge and to say, here's what you've done, here's what you've taken from me. And they didn't respond with violence or hatred or vitriol. They responded with forgiveness. It, it's one of the most amazing stories of grace that I've ever witnessed. 
And they came, and family members and church members alike came and said, yeah, we don't, we don't know why you would do this. We don't know why you would take this from us. But I pray that God would have mercy on your soul. I pray that God would change your heart, that He would begin to work in your life. This is the person who has just desecrated their whole uh, idea of what God is and how He works in the world. And a year later, reflecting on the horrible violence inflicted upon His church and the amazing grace that their community as a whole embodied, uh, Reverend Norvell Goff Jr. said in a sermon, He said, we've been preaching about forgiveness. We've been talking about that God is rich in mercy, that He is a forgiving God. Steadfast love is who He is. We've been preaching about forgiveness in Sunday school and in Bible school. We do it because our God commands us to love your neighbor as yourself. They still call this guy a neighbor, which is equally astounding. Our faith is stronger than fear. We still have the audacity and the temerity to believe that love overtakes hate. Jonah knew. He knew Exodus 34. He knew that God was merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. He just didn't know it. And for many of us today, we know that Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. We just don't always know it. Mercy starts when we, just as Jonah did, accept it for ourselves. The fish swallows Jonah, and he is grateful for this mercy of God. But it doesn't end there. To truly reflect God's heart, we have to extend mercy. We have to be a conduit for God's mercy in the world. And we see this so, so clearly in life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. You see, the cross is the ultimate example of the scandal of God's mercy as Christ is brutally murdered by both the collusion of religion and empire as he is beaten, mocked, and taunted, he prays some of the most profound words ever offered. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they are doing. Forgive them. Mercy. We don't know what we are doing. It's on the words and actions of Christ that the church is built. As the church, we are a community of scandalous mercy. Look around. Look around you right now. Friends, if we aren't a place that's upfront about the kind of mercy that we need, and if we aren't seeking earnestly to be constantly extending and talking about the mercy of God, we are not a church. And frankly, I'm not sure we know God. But, here's the beautiful thing. But if we are people who gratefully receive God's mercy and who gratefully give it, we start to look a lot like Jesus on the cross saying, forgive them, Father. We start to walk the world as Jesus did, as the pardon of God. When we hear God's words of mercy spoken over us, chains are broken, and we hear that our sin and our shame does not get the last word. God's beautiful truth does. I'll never forget this past year... Um, it was just one of those random Sundays. And, man, we've had just a, such an amazing influx of musicians and people that there are times where I show up on Sunday and I don't have a whole lot to do. And uh, Courtney and my girls were out of town. They were in Oklahoma, and I was going to leave to join them the next day. And I just didn't have anything I had to do here. So I woke up, and I was just like, I'm just not going to go to church. So I didn't. I skipped church. So if this is licensed for some of you, not you guys, um, 
then by all means. But I just didn't go. And I went to get breakfast down to the bagel place we go to. Uh, and it was weird. Like, I, I was trying to just be kind of alive to what God may be teaching me in that moment. And I'm, I'm driving through uh, the streets I drive down all the time. And I just had this profound sense of sadness. Like, I, I just felt like I'm watching people go to soccer practice, run their errands, just kind of, you know, go to family brunch, whatever it is they're doing. And, and I felt truly saddened. And it's not, like, I'm not judging individuals here, so don't, don't get me wrong. But, but, but this lie that there's some God-shaped hole in everybody's heart, I, I just, I'm not sure. I think we're pretty content to live our lives, uh, you know, for ourselves and, and pretty good at it. But as I'm driving through the streets, I just had this profound sense of sadness because I knew that these people didn't know God's mercy. They didn't know how much God valued them, how much He loved them, how much He cared for them. And I'm driving through this city, this place where I have lived for nine years now, and I start to get a glimpse of how God feels about people. You see, it's so good that we are here this morning. But church, we have to become a place where this kind of thing the, the injustice in the world, yes, but also the fact that people just don't know God. The people that their, their, their lives aren't informed by the, the creator of the universe. They don't know that there's a God who loves them and has given everything, has moved heaven and earth to know them. That should keep us up at night. It should cause us to be people of grace and of mercy. And I had this profound experience, just God sort of teaching me something, like Jonah, on the way to breakfast. And I wonder, church, it's time for us to be people of God's mercy. You see, central New Jersey, Princeton, Trenton, Ewing, Hopewell, Pennington, it all looks a lot like Nineveh to me. And so church, can we be people who struggle with God, who wrestle in the hard things like Jonah did? Can we be people who maybe come to understand that God's mercy is broader and bigger and wider and deeper and more beautiful than we ever would have thought? Can we receive God's mercy for us? Because, man, they need us. The church is the hope of the world. People as recipients of God's mercy and extending it and living beautifully in it, that is God's mission. The Ninevite people didn't know if God would extend mercy. If you read chapter 3, it just says, the king says, perhaps. We don't know. We don't know if this is going to work out. Their whole response is built on this sort of speculation. But can I tell you today that you, you don't have to speculate. You don't have to wonder if God will forgive you, if he will uh, forgive, if he will change his thoughts for you, because he has demonstrated his thoughts for you in Christ Jesus. Uh, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, As we move towards communion, I'm going to invite the communion service to come up and the band to come up. It wasn't so long ago, this is the message version uh, by Eugene Peterson. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it, all of us, what we felt like doing, when we felt like doing it, all of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with a whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. 
He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did all this on His own with no help from us. And He picked us up and He set us down in highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. God, instead, immense and rich in mercy and with an incredible love. Guys, there is mercy for you today. God is inviting us as people uh, to be like the Ninevites and to repent, to, to, to throw ourselves upon the mercy of God, to start on the grounds of mercy and to find the freedom and life that are waiting for you and knowing God and waiting for walking with Him for the rest of your life. Perhaps you are like the Ninevites today. You just need to say, oh man, I didn't even know. I, I didn't know this grace, this mercy was there. I invite you as we take communion to say, God, I need you. But perhaps some of you are like Jonah today. Perhaps God has called you to do something and you've been running. Maybe you know what that is and you're, you've, been, you've been going the other way and maybe you need to say, all right, God, your beauty, your truth is bigger than I would have imagined. It's possible that God is trying to teach you how to forgive in your life and that may be a long and arduous process and that's okay as we see from Jonah's life. Guys, mercy and forgiveness are not just cheap goods that we throw around. They come at an immense cost. And you know that if you've ever had to forgive somebody. Maybe your knowledge of God is for all intents and purposes, kind of like Jonah's. You kind of know about God. John 3.16, God loves everybody. Great. You don't know what that means. Can I invite you to dig into who God is? His grace, His life that He has for you is so, so good. And the scriptures are the place where he meets us and invites us and talks to us. God's, God's love for the world is evident in our lives as we receive his mercy. Church, wherever you find yourself today, I invite you to open your hands and receive God's mercy.